Hey, welcome to the Rungi FBC Sermon Podcast. I'm really excited to see that you're seeking the Lord with your time and pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Before you listen, however, I just want to issue out a disclaimer. If at any point during this message you feel like you need to work for God's approval and salvation, stop and instead remember that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Always keep that in mind and you will be ready to receive from the Lord. Today we're going to continue our study on the book of Hebrews. So if you have a copy of scripture handy, will you turn to Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 18 and study it with me? Today's message is entitled, Forgive and Forget. Do you know anyone who likes to harp on previous injustices they've suffered? I can't think of anything more annoying than someone who always brings up how you sinned against them years ago. When I was a kid, my older brother and sister, they um, they fought like cats and dogs. I mean, they were always fighting with each other. Uh, my sister, who's the oldest, uh, I mean, she and I got along, but I was tied it out with my brother, but she and I, you know, we just, we never fought really. However, one time um, we were carrying in groceries and I, a can of corn fell out of the bag. And so I just took in what I was carrying and I came back out to get it. And I don't even remember what she said to me, but as I picked up that can of corn, she said the wrong thing to me. And she made me mad, and, and I threw that can, and I hit her right in the head. Now, if you've ever met my sister, then you've likely heard about the can of corn. And you know how when babies' skulls are forming, it often leaves an indention where the two parts merge? Right at the base of my hairline, kind of running down my forehead, I have a little indention. Well, she likes to tell people that her indention is a permanent dent that was left by the can of corn. I don't know how many times I've told her, that's not from the can of corn, Amanda. It, it, everybody, almost everybody has that, okay? My sister loves bringing that up. And truthfully, she does it in a playful manner. But it can still be kind of annoying, just to be honest. Hey, remember when you hit me in the head with that can of corn? Because I haven't forgotten about it. I still have the dent to prove it. And every time she brings it up, rather than be like, I'm so sorry. I just tell her, well, you shouldn't run your mouth. You know, you don't run your mouth, you don't get hit in the head with a can of corn. Do you know anyone who likes to dwell on previous injustices and remind others how they were sinned against in the past? Now, I can recognize that although my sister does this playfully, there are times when people aren't having fun when they bring it up. Now, they just want to rake you over the coals. And sometimes people play things up and make it sound worse than it was. And sometimes it really was a terrible injustice that they suffered. And they just have difficulty moving past it. But whatever the case, although they may have suffered, they constantly remind us because they've harbored unforgiveness in their hearts. And listen, unforgiveness is poison. When you swallow unforgiveness, you develop a victim mentality that focuses on entitlement and a list of wrongs. It's a heart that says, you owe me. And the reason this is so dangerous is because when we always feel as if we're owed... It's difficult to differentiate between what's actually ours by right and what isn't. So we begin taking on entitlement for things that don't belong to us. Unforgiveness makes us petty and impulsive. We tend to look for further injustice, and we're going to latch on to any injustice we can find, no matter how small. You drank the last of the milk, and I'm suffering in terrible ways because of it. When we, bought bit, when we harbor bitterness... It makes us difficult people to be around because we tend to take it out on people who have nothing to do with the situation. I know when I'm frustrated, I typically take it out on the people that I love the most. I can walk around the house like an ogre 
and take it out on my wife and kids and everyone walks on eggshells around me. And I hate that. Unforgiveness limits our ability to reframe our experiences because we constantly play the scenario over and over and over again in our minds. Well, in that uh, playing it over and over again, have you ever heard somebody's story seem to get worse and worse every time they tell it? We do this because when the story that everyone's heard doesn't seem to get the response and reaction that we're looking for, we embellish and we add to the story, making it worse. Unforgiveness can literally make us sick. Unforgiveness causes stress and that leads to stress-related illnesses like uh, anxiety and depression and even high blood pressure. And sometimes rather than dealing with the root issue, we just treat it with medication. Unforgiveness causes us to not take responsibility for our feelings. Uh, we refuse that responsibility. When we refuse to forgive someone who sinned against us, what we're saying to them is, I hold you responsible, not only for what you did to me, but how I responded and reacted to it. I hold you responsible for my unhappiness. And un unforgiveness can cause us to not, not only hate other people, but even hate ourselves. And I know that can sound a bit extreme, but if we're stuck in unforgiveness, we experience things like guilt and shame and harsh self-judgment and even self-sabotage. We don't allow ourselves to experience good things because something deep inside of us knows that we need to forgive and we're unwilling to. When we refuse to forgive others, we're drinking a deadly, toxic brew that destroys our lives. Now, I don't think I have to tell you, Jesus had a lot to say about forgiveness in the Bible. However, what I'd like to do today is continue our study on Hebrews and look not at what Jesus said, but what Jesus did. Because we all know that talk is cheap unless you're willing to back it up. So what I'd like to do is, is I'd like to continue our study on Hebrews and talk about ways that Christ has liberated us, liberated us from all manner of sin. In Hebrews 9, we studied about how Christ brought on a new covenant, which is superior to the old covenant because it's founded on better promises. We studied about how each of the elements in the tabernacle was fulfilled in Christ and how he not only made it possible for us to meet with God, that he prepares us to face judgment unafraid. Today, we're going to pick up our study by looking at Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. And I just want to start by looking at verses 1 through 9. For this, this is what it says. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offering, sacrifices for sin, you have not, you've taken no pleasure. But I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book that is written about me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings, and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for your sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let's pray. 
Father God, we come to you now and we just ask God that you would help us to understand what we're reading. God, Hebrews is a difficult book to understand, God, because we just don't have our roots in Judaism. We're not coming from the same place. But God, I just pray that you would teach us not only what this passage is talking about, but Father, show us how this applies to us right here, right now. God, prove through your word that it is not outdated, not outdated, it's not old. Father, that it's perfect right here, right now for us. Father, help us to see that. Examine our hearts as we examine Scripture, Father. Show us if there's anything that goes going unresolved in our hearts or maybe even something that we need to forgive. We love you, Father, and all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the author of Hebrews mentions in this passage how the law is a shadow, or in the Greek, a pale reflection of something greater. Well, if the law is a shadow of something greater, what is that which is greater? He elaborates by talking about what the law is powerless to do, and that's going to give us a better picture of what he's what 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 it's a shadow of. He talks about in verse one how the law can never make perfect those who draw near. In verse two, the law cannot cleanse our consciousness consciences, for it just condemns us and shows us our sins. Jesus said in, in John five forty five, "Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses." whom you have set your hope. In other words, the religious leaders, they were trusting in the law to keep them safe. But Jesus says, it's because of the law that you're in trouble. In verse 3, the author of Hebrews says, the law and the sacrifices that were necessary to fulfill the law, they cannot take away sin. So if the law is unable to do these things, that which is greater, the law, the thing that the, the law gives a poor reflection of, it can. If, if the law is, isn't able to, because it's a poor reflection, well, then the actual thing can. So what is it that the, that the law shadows? What is it that can make us perfect, cleanse our consciousness, consciences, excuse me, and take away sin? It's not what, it's who. The law is a pale reflection, nothing but a shadow of Christ. Think about this. When, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and, and the Israelites, it wasn't just a list of things that they should and shouldn't do. It was insight on the character and nature of God himself. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me, because I'm the only God there is. Thou shalt not make and worship a graven image, because I don't worship those things. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain, which to take in Hebrew means to carry. So in other words, do not carry my name into your sin, because I don't sin. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Why? Because I kept it holy. Honor your mother and father because I honor your mother and father. Thou shalt not murder because I don't unjustifiably kill others. Thou shalt not commit adultery because guess what? I don't cheat on you. Thou shalt not steal because I don't steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness because I don't bear false witness. Don't lie because I don't lie. Thou shalt not covet because I am who you truly need for happiness and fulfillment. Now, I've heard people say that Jesus isn't God. He's God's son. But keep in mind that only God could perfectly keep the law because the law is a shadow or a pale reflection of him. It, it, I want to say it was easy for God, Jesus to do what he, what, what he did, but it was in his nature because he's God. I want to direct your attention to a point that I've made several times on our study in the book of Hebrews and the purpose for which this letter was written, because we're really getting deep in this, it was written to a bunch of Jewish Christians who were being persecuted by the religious leaders in Judaism so that they should return. 
You, who, who was pressuring them? What was the reason they were being pressured? Like, what were they being told, do you think? While we don't have the whole story, the way this letter is written should tell us a lot about what was happening here, that the religious leaders, some of the very same men who condemned Jesus to a cross, they were the ones that were putting pressure on believers. We're going to learn in the next uh, chapter or in the next part uh, how they lost some of their possessions. So they put them under extreme persecution. And and what we're going to see here is that, um, that, that, that they're coming to them and they're putting them under pressure by telling them things like, you don't belong to God because no sacrifice is being made to atone for your sin. And so the author of Hebrews mentions how the continual sacrifices being made in the temple system, not only can it not make us perfect, cleanse our consciences, or uh, take away sin, but that the sacrifice was never what God desired in the first place. God didn't want innocent animals to die. He allowed that to happen so that we might be spared. It was a grace and mercy that God spared us through the shedding of animals. And the author of Hebrews quotes uh, Psalm 46, which I think is significant here. It says, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. Keep in mind, Jesus, who was a descendant of the throne of David. Remember that throne that was never going to end? Jesus was a direct descendant of David. We see that in the book of Matthew. David was the one that wrote this psalm. And Jesus comes saying, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And whole burnt offering and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. It says in verse 7, I hope you saw that. I don't know if this is in your Bible, but it's in parentheses in mine, in the scroll of the book that is written about me. The author of Hebrews points out that, that this shouldn't be a surprise to these Christians because it was written in the Psalms. Okay, he's saying, listen, this was written about Christ. And Jesus said, this was written about me. What he's doing in this passage is he's taking away the ammunition from the religious leaders who are trying to put these believers under pressure to return to Judaism because no sacrifice is being made to atone for your sins. And in verse 9, the author testifies that Jesus has fulfilled the sacrifice. He has taken away the requirements met by the first covenant. And he has fulfilled it and he has established a second covenant, a better covenant, one made on better promises. The system of sacrifice didn't solve any problems. That's what he's telling me. Just kick the can down the road. And it didn't make them perfect. It didn't take away their sins. It didn't cleanse them from guilt. And it didn't say, hey, I'm never going to bring this up again. Every year they would bring their sacrifice, and it was a system that was set up as if someone was saying to them, Hey, you remember that can of corn you threw at my head? Yeah, I still have the dent to prove it. It was a painful reminder that their sins hadn't been removed from them, that nothing was resolved. It was a system to pay for sin, not to pay for sin, but to simply buy it on credit. And we've already studied in Hebrews how Jesus came to pay in full. So in verse 10, we should understand what he means when he says, By this we, will ha we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The Greek word for all here means all. All the sin that stretches back and was bought on credit. All the sin that could be committed in the future. Every single person under the banner of God and being in the very nature of Jesus Christ, of God, Jesus Christ, their sins are paid for. 
In other words, those guys who kept pressuring you to return so that your sins might be atoned for, they have rejected Christ and they are still charging up their credit cards. They are in massive debt and they can never repay it. Hebrews 10, uh, 11 through 18, let me read this for you. It says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time sat down on the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days says the Lord I will put my laws upon their heart uh, and on their minds I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's some irony in this passage of Scripture when you study church history and you study about um, you, you know, what happened to Jerusalem. The irony is, is that we believe that this was written in 68 AD, and I'll explain why in just a second. The priests were pressuring these people to return to a system of sacrifice. They sent out the message, your sins aren't being atoned for, they're not being paid for. Yet in 70 AD, just two short years later, the armies of Rome encircled Jerusalem and not only destroyed the temple, but every good Jew that could prove their lineage to the priesthood. The entire tribe of Aaron, the, the Levite tribe, every single one was killed. You may ask, well, what about all the good Jews that weren't in Jerusalem? Well, every good Jew was in Jerusalem, and there's an important reason why. Three times a year, Jews were commanded to return to Jerusalem to observe three important festivals. The Festival of Weeks, which uh, represented the receiving of the law. The Festival of Tabernacles, which represented God's provision in the wilderness. And the Festival of Unleavened Bread, which represented the Passover. So these Romans encircled the city of Jerusalem and laid siege to it. In other words, rather than lose soldiers, this is a tactic that they did. They just starve the inhabitants out to make them surrender. You get hungry enough, you about do just about anything. So the city was already scarce of food because the city was under siege. And to make things worse, the Romans allowed in over 2 million more Jews. They allowed them in for the Passover, but they didn't let them out. And that made it that much worse inside the city. The goal was to make them to submit and surrender. But because of the fighting and the, 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 just all of the, the, the battles and stuff that were going on inside the city because of the Jewish factions, they chose death. And this is why we believe Hebrews was written before 70 AD because he speaks in present tense in verse 11 when he says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin so he's talking in present tense that they're doing this and in verse 12 he said jesus offered one sacrifice for all time so that's past tense now i want to i want to ask you to do me a favor in verse 12 you see where it says um but he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time would you would you do me a favor and just get a pen and underline for all time in verse 12 because we're going to come back to that in just a second just two short years later every good jew 
who could prove they belonged to the priesthood, and the temple system itself was completely destroyed just two years after this letter was written. And, and you know, it's funny, the irony is, is I don't know today why anyone would, would, would want to belong to Judaism. There is no atonement being made for sin. There is no possible way to start up this system again because even if they built the temple again, which Revelation tells us is going to happen, but even if they tried to build this again, who's going to staff it? In order to staff it, you have to prove that you're from the tribe of Levi, and no one is able to do that. There is no Levitical priesthood anymore. Do you know what their, their the loophole to get around this is, to continue to be a, a Jew, continue to practice Judaism today? In the Passover meal, a lamb was slain, sacrificed, and, and each family would eat a part of that lamb. Uh, in, uh, in Passover seders, at least in Messianic Passover seders, you see a lamb shank that has meat on the bone. In the traditional uh, Jewish practice, which is practiced today, the Passover seder meal doesn't have a lamb, doesn't have a shank with the, with the meat on it. It's just the bone. And they do this because, well, no sacrifice can be made. But see, they also put an egg on the plate. Why an egg? Well, an egg represents life, and they dip it in, in salt water because of the tears. We have a life of sadness because we can't offer that sacrifice anymore. Where did that come from? It came from Jewish rabbis. Listen, Jewish rabbis are not the priesthood. The, these are, are men whom the Jewish priesthood would consider their enemies. They would treat them like Samaritans. And they would spit in their face because they cannot pr prove their descent from the nation of Israel. And they were the ones that said, well, we'll just use an egg. The irony is, is that in the book of Hebrews, these Christians were being put under pressure from these men saying, your sins aren't being paid for. And now... They have no way to atone for sin. Will we eat the egg? Oh, did God say that? Uh, uh, no, no, we're, we're saying that. Mm -mm. You see, the author of Hebrews is telling them the next time someone comes to you and tells you your sins aren't being paid for, will you tell them, you know what, that's right. My sins aren't being paid for because my sins have already been paid for. I'm not living my life on credit. Jesus came to pay in full. The author of Hebrews testifies in verses 16 through 18 why this is much a much better uh, covenant. Another reason. He says, you know, basically before the law had to be studied and presented by priests and rabbis. Now, thanks to the Holy Spirit, God's law is written on our hearts and our minds. You see these counselors, these these uh, priests and rabbis See, they, they, they were a poor reflection of the counselor, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and he writes these laws on our hearts and minds. And in verse 17, we see the greatest news so far. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I'm going to ask you to pay a little attention to, to verse 18. We're not really going to talk about that in detail. This, this message, that's going to come into play next time. 
it says now now where there is forgiveness of things there is no longer any offering for sin that that's going to come in, into play heavily next week so, so just we're going to table that one for now what this passage teaches us about god is that because of jesus sacrifice god has forgiven and forgotten our sin and this is where things start to get a little muddy because where we take that is is that oh well um you know we're supposed to forgive and forget like god does and listen if we have that mentality that what we need to do is forgive and forget like we think well i've got to forget about everything anybody ever did to me that makes forgiveness even more impossible if you think that to forgive someone you have to forget about all they've done that's going to stand in your way from actually being able to forgive them. I just want to call your attention back to God, and I just want to briefly talk about how, if we're in Christ, God has not only forgiven our sins, he's forgotten them. God forgetting isn't that he developed spiritual amnesia where he says, well, I know you did something, but I just can't remember what it is. What, 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 what did you do again? God's all-knowing. Of course he knows what we have done. You see, the Greek word for remember your sins no more, it, it, it basically means I'm not going to remind you. I'm not going to remind you anymore. We can't say that God has forgotten about our sins because he's all-knowing. God forgetting is not that he doesn't know. It's showing a true representation of what forgiveness actually is. That I have paid your debt and I'm not going to bring it up anymore. Which means we can't say, I, I forgave that person for what they did and just continue to bring it up. We can't do that. Hey, you remember when you hit me in the head with that can of corn? See, this is why only God can help us to truly forgive someone. Because when we try to forgive someone, the world tells us we have to forget about it. And listen, that is a perversion of scripture and it is false doctrine. For example, I once read an article where a guy explained... Uh, how he went to see a man on death row who killed his son. And, and see, the world was telling me, you got to forgive and forget. And he said, if I simply forgot what this man did, I mean, I can forgive him, but if I forgot what he did, it'd be like my son never existed. I mean, how am I supposed to do that? I deeply loved my son. Forgiveness is not developing spiritual amnesia, and that's not a sign of spiritual maturity, but uh, uh, mental health. Okay, I don't remember what happened there. Forgiveness is saying you don't owe me anything anymore, and I'm not going to remind you of how I forgave your debt. I'm not bringing it up. See, I had you underline the words for all time. You remember that in verse 12? And I just want to explain why I asked you to do that. Do you know who loves to bring up the times that we sinned? Revelation 12.10 says, Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God day and night. Who is that person, do you think? Who's the accuser? Satan. What this passage teaches us is that Satan loves accusing us of our sin. And my question for you is, do you think he has to make stuff up? 
I mean, allow me to go ahead and answer that question for you. No, Satan, Satan doesn't have to make stuff up. He's got plenty of things to accuse us of. Don't you remember when he worshipped other things than you, God? Don't you remember when he didn't keep the Sabbath holy? I mean, do you remember when she lied or when he stole or when she coveted or when he murdered? Do you remember when they committed adultery? I mean, remember when they dishonored their parents? Do you remember when they took your name in vain? Don't you remember when they sinned against you? And scripture tells us not that God goes, not when did that happen? But that it has no effect on him. It doesn't have any effect on the way that he loves us and he forgave us. And if it doesn't have any effect on God, what do you think Satan does next? If when I take it to God it doesn't work, what does he do then? He brings it to us. Hey, remember your great sin? Hey, you remember that can of corn? Because I do. You see, he had a foothold in these believers' hearts. Because he wouldn't let them forget about their great sin. And not only, hey, remember that sin? He came in with another message. Oh, and by the way, nobody's paying for that right now, just so you know. This is why verse 12 matters. But he, the Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. This should tell us the next time Satan brings up our sin, the next time he tries to pull us out from the atoning work of Christ, we have an answer for his accusations. That's right, Satan. Nobody's paying for my sin because my sin is paid for. Nobody's. I'm not living on credit anymore. It's paid in full for all time. What about tomorrow when you're sinned? Paid for. What about next week? Paid for. It's paid for, Satan. And the next time Satan tries to remind you of your past, just remind him of his future. Revelation 12.10 tells us that Satan will be hurled down and destroyed in the lake of fire. Our accuser who accuses us day and night before God. He's destroyed. So instead of letting him get a foothold in your heart, go back to the atoning work of Christ. Go back and read in your Bibles, he offered one sacrifice for sin for all time. Christ has paid for our sins. And instead of trying to kick the can down the road, we have to realize Jesus picked it up and disposed of it. I got rid of that. Sin's done. God said to us, you don't owe me anymore. And you know what? I'm not going to remind you of it. I'm never going to bring it up again. I heard a good friend of mine say, just because you aren't in debt anymore, that doesn't mean you're wealthy. What he meant by that is, is that if your sins have been forgiven, are you still living in poverty? Guess what? When we refuse to forgive others when they sin against us, we're living in poverty. I mean, think about this. It is amazing grace that Jesus could say from the cross while he's being horribly sinned against, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, there is some deep emotional insight on that. Sin, it entangles us, and, it un and unforgiveness, it just sinks down into our hearts. It makes us bitter and petty. 
And we're unable to, to reshape that and say this happened and that God can use this for all good. No, no, we, we hold on to that and it makes us bitter people who are hard to be around. We're hurt. And guess what? Hurt people hurt people. Just causes us to hurt other people. That person who sinned against you or that person that you loved, I always said my mom was like a mother bear. She was a sweet lady until you messed with one of her cubs. Woo-wee! She would get nasty. We have a hard time forgiving people who sin against us, but it's even worse when it happens to those whom we love. Keep in mind that person who sinned against you or your loved one, wasn't that likely because they were sinned against horribly too? And instead of forgiving those who sinned against them, they harbored bitterness in their heart, feeling uh, uh, just entitled to justice. Frustrated, angry, bitter. They just took it out on those around them. They hurt others because they were hurt. If you don't hear anything else I say today, I hope you will hear this. The pathway to being able to forgive those people who sin against us comes first by being forgiven. We are forgiven all our debts towards God. When we are forgiven our debt when we realize God says to us, you don't owe me anymore and I'm not going to remind you of your sin. Doesn't that show us the true picture of who we really want to become? Don't you read that? Don't you hear that and say, God, how can I be just like you? Genesis 1 tells us we were created in his image. But Genesis 3 says that all of creation was subject to frustration when Adam and Eve sinned. That sin crept in. And we sin against each other and that cycle just keeps continuing. Well, you sinned against me with a rock, and so I'm going to bring a slingshot, and then you're going to bring a gun, and then I'm going to bring a tank, and then you're going to bring an atom bomb, and we'll just blow the whole world up. God says, you don't owe him anymore. He answers sin. He takes away sin. He forgives. And we want to be like that, but we don't know how. Romans 8, 28 and 29 it says and we know that all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for those whom God foreknew he also pre predestined to be conformed in the image of his son i'm going to take you and your bitter unforgiving heart and i'm going to i'm going to just give you deep love and i'm going to forgive you and i'm going to teach you something about myself and when you experience that firsthand, you will want to be just like me. I will teach you how to do that. I will shape you. I will form you into my son. You are created into my image, and so I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you in the image 
of me. God forgave so we could forgive. We don't have to live in debt. Our sin's paid for, but guess what? We don't have to live in poverty either. True wealth comes when we follow Christ's example, when we sacrifice what we're owed, and we realize that Christ paid for that sin too. In closing, just recognize that this is the answer for living that abundant life. We are forgiven so we can forgive. You don't forgive. Satan is just going to take from you and steal your abundant life. And you will live miserable in poverty. Christ has come to forgive us so we can be forgiving and when we allow this truth to take root in our hearts not only will he keep us living an abundant life of spiritual wealth that he will shape us into the image of his son and this is especially important because in the future we just might see a can of corn flying towards our heads. Well, I hope this message has been an encouragement to you and that you have a renewed purpose and dedication to trust in the Lord and serve Him. Please feel free to download our church app so that you never miss another message by searching FBC Rungi in the Apple App Store or Google Play. We at Rungi First Baptist Church are here to take root, grow, and bear fruit. So if you'd like to join with us in our mission, then let's get out there and bring glory to God.